renaissance, many men sought their fortune with the sword. Many died a violent and anonymous death, but a rare few covered their names with glory. The Italians called these men the condottieri. These are their stories. On the last day of the year 1516, the imposing Gonzaga Castle in the heart of northern Italy hosted one of the most famous duels of the Italian Renaissance. A clash of steel between two famous warriors, Ugo Papoli of Bologna and Guido Rangoni from Modena. The duels of those days were public affairs, and the host of this duel, the Marquis of Mantua, had arranged a field where the leading lords and ladies of the land could come and watch. And come they did by the thousands. The silk-clad lords of Venice rubbed elbows with the hard-eyed warlords of Romagna. So too had come the ladies of Romagna, a land so violent that even the women were known to don armor and guard the ramparts. We can imagine the contemptuous expressions they directed at the bejeweled ladies of Venice gathered around the barriers. On the day of this duel, this vast multitude of spectators gathered around the long wooden fences of the dueling ground and gossiped with nervous anticipation. The chatter came to an immediate end with the shrill cry of a long bronze trumpet. The crowd rose to its feet, and for a moment the only sound was the snap of flags and the swirling wind. Then the crowd heard the soft clatter of horses slowly walking toward the assembly. These horses bore Rangoni and Papoli, both wearing long purple and gold cloaks trimmed with fur. With the grace of skilled cavalrymen, they swung down from their mounts, entered the dueling ground, and walked to its middle to speak with the judge of the duel. In a loud voice, the judge read out the charges of the duel and enumerated the insults made against Pepoli by Rangoni. The judge pleaded with the two men to settle their grievances with Christian virtue. Both men angrily refused. Having expected such a response, the judge asked the challenged fighter, Rangoni, to state the rules of the duel. Rangoni declared that the warriors would fight with swords as their only weapon and a gauntlet on the left arm as their only armor. Then he added the second and most important stipulation. The fight would be to the conclusion, that is, to the death. Excitement buzzed through the crowd. No one had ever seen or heard of such a duel. The crowd was filled with experienced mercenaries and knights, many men who had worn the blood of their fallen enemies upon their clothes, yet none had ever heard of a duel fought to the death without armor. Once Rangoni and Pepoli retired to nearby tents to prepare for the fight, the judge wrapped his staff upon the wooden platform where he stood and made a declaration to the crowd that received the full attention of all. When this duel begins, you must all be silent. Upon the pain of death, None of you must cry out when a wound is given or received. Guido Rangoni was the first to emerge from his tent. In his right hand he held a sword, while a brown gauntlet of bronze covered his left hand. His many supporters in the crowd cheered as he took his place in one corner of the dueling ground, while those against Rangoni made insults about his short stature. A few moments later, to the cheers of his own supporters, Ugo Pepoli emerged from his tent. He was dressed almost identically to Rangoni, save for one crucial difference. A net made of gold thread lay upon the crown of his head, a net that kept his long hair in a bunch. As both men presented themselves before the judge again for final approval, Rangoni objected to this net of gold. In the manner of a man used to commanding troops, he said, Tell Popoli he must either cut his hair short like a man, like mine, or else tie up his tresses in a knot. Rangoni's supporters broke into laughter at this insult. This laughter turned into jeers and uproar as Popoli ripped the threads from his head, and all those present saw the true reason for the net of gold. Popoli was Another loud blast of the trumpet ended the jeers and the noise. Without a sound, the crowd watched the two men retire to their respective corners. Then, at a signal from the judge, Rangoni and Papoli emerged and stalked toward one another on the cat-like feet of skilled fencers, their swords glinting in the winter sunshine. The duel had begun. Stephen, so 
why are we doing this? What are we looking at here, and why are Guido Rangone and Ugo Peppole so important? Wow, that's a great, great question. All right, so first, we're doing this because we love history, and we love digging out the little interesting tidbits of history that you find as you delve into it. Um, but beyond that, as historical fencers, it's really important for us to understand the perspective at the time. Um, the art of fencing and uh, fighting was baked into everything in the culture. Uh, when you wore your sword around with you, you had to be prepared to draw it at any any situation, in, in any kind of situation, any kind of fight could arise. Um, but you also had to know how to use it on the battlefield, and you had to know how to use it for show to display your prowess it, it was a it was baked into the culture and until we can appreciate that we're not going to be able to just escape the trap of being guys who tag each other with swords for fun nice yeah so i guess a good way to kind of introduce all of this and really kind of get into the depths of what we're doing um you know we can kind of start out and just kind of go ahead and, and just say we put probably at this point thousands of hours of research into this um and you know this isn't quite a, a uh, sort of a, a free venture where we're just kind of wandering about looking for random duels and things like that these are very pointed and direct things and we actually pulled these from specific sources so uh, we wanted to kind of start out with uh almost an episode zero a teaser episode of of everything that we're about to do where we kind of delve into uh, the source material from the Bolognese sources and uh, actually highlight uh, where these names come from and who these folk heroes are because these guys were folk heroes. You know, we're going to talk about uh, Angelo Vigiani, we're going to talk about Marazzo, and we're going to talk about Camillo Palladini. And the amazing thing is we're going to see names that pop out up, up throughout this story of characters that are sort of larger than life. And, Ain't you know, the truth. yeah, and, and we didn't really know some of these characters, who the, some of these characters were. Oh, man, this is such a we... spicy time. <laughs> yeah, until we really started kind of getting in the weeds and really looking up the information. And then all of a sudden we're like, hey, wait a second. Is that the guy that Paladini mentions? Wow, this guy's kind of a badass, you know? Right, right. So, um... I think what we're going to do with this uh, this sort of this teaser episode is we're going to go through these introductions and we're going to look at some of these uh, specific things. Any uh, final thoughts before I get into some of these introductions here? So it's an important thing to note uh, for anybody who's practicing the Bolognese art that these are two Bolognese fencers trained in the Bolognese art probably by the best ma masters in the city. Um, which we will have to we will have to delve into in a future episode of what all was going on, and so much of what was happening in this duel was not just some random insults, but was a fight that goes back probably to when these guys were boys, fighting with swords and bucklers in front of the warriors that they admired, and maybe exchanging a cheap shot or an insult then and. The constant intrigue and rivalry and battles and constant switching of sides that all came to this moment in front of all of these really important people in northern Italy. And if you're in Bolognese arts, you have to understand everything that kind of goes into this moment and how deep it is. Yeah, and, and to kind of preface that, like one of the things that we're going to really build off of here is that... Uh, this goes really deep um, through some of the source material um, we actually found what we think may be the foundation of the Bolognese school um, and a lot of other information that you know we're gonna build this out into basically an 11 part series on just if we can Rand get it done in 11 episodes <laughs> there's so much there is so much yeah so you know, the more source material we find, which we are, are starting to really get into a lot more of the original source material, and we're f uncovering things that are just breathtaking in terms of their depth and uh, potential knowledge. Um, 
you know, that, and that's that's a lot of the work. A lot of the work has come from looking at these source materials and, and starting to build out this story where before we were looking very loosely at source material and then not necessarily having the depth of knowledge that we have now. Um, but as we've gotten more information, we found more threads to kind of weave through this story that make it deeper and more intriguing because there are some absolutely mind-boggling things that happen. <laughs> yes. So the structure of these episodes is basically going to be that we're going to start every episode with a um, sort of an, an, um, uh, a freeform narration of a story that relates to... Uh, and gives the timeline for the buildup of this, and then we're going to talk about specific details that sort of build, come out of that story. Um, we've taken a few liberties with the way that we're telling the story, so it's not all 100% there, but we'll call out anything that we take as a liberty uh, in the future, in, in future episodes. So if we decide to add a little bit of intrigue to a story, we'll let you know when. So... Um, I guess from there, uh, we're going to go ahead and kick this off. So uh, I wanted to start this one with Murazzo's introduction um, because Murazzo gives us a tremendous amount of information. And uh, I'm going to do my best to uh, read this in my old man Murazzo voice. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how this goes. All right, ready? Let's do it. I began this little work of mine. <laughs> Which in truth is nothing fancy, but is very useful, if I'm not mistaken. A long time ago, wherein I methodically discussed the considerations and ploys that arise in dealing with every kind of weapon, of which it can be said that they have proven to be utterly essential, as they have been found to have been very praiseworthy in every age, including our own owing to their frequent use for preservations of one's honor. Having begun this work in my early youth, as I said, I have indulged myself in this final age of mine to grant it its final completion and to send it forth to the community of man for their knowledge and use, so that responses thereunto may come to me regarding not only those things that are, were shown to me in this art by the very practitioner thereof, the Bolognese maestro Guido Antonio de Luca, from the, whose school it can be said that more warriors emerged than are said to have from the Trojan horse, but also all those things that I have learned in any way from wherever else, as well as those things discovered by me that very sure experience is often confirmed to me to be true, experience which cannot be achieved in any small number of years, and is required more in the undertaking than in any other, given that this is more dangerous than any other, and that means, therefore, the most serious disputes are decided among the great. However, many hard lords befell me while bringing the said publication of this conclusion, for the aforesaid reasons, I now find myself determined to undertake another, because I wish to dedicate it to someone, almost an earthly deity, under whose favor it can be safe from the bites of the envious, as the saying goes, to proceed into the hands of man and to pass into the coming ages. I will not have to labor long in selecting whom among many I must, for it seems that many of those who are chosen are selected almost as a matter of custom, because to whom else could I worthily send it than to you, magnanimous and magnificent Count Guido, who are plainly the splendor and brightness not only of brilliant family of Rangone, which has yielded so many famous and valiant men, and of the armies of Italy, but of those of all Europe and all of Christian chivalry. And then whom in so much time my eyes have not yet seen either a more valorous duke or wiser knight. From this I derived a very sure indication from which necessarily arose an equally firm hope since the time in which you were acquiring this very genteel art under the instruction of the aforesaid maestro Guido Antonio, whose teachings, being essential to your dignity, you were practicing until, with your glory, they were carried to the stars. 
And if I am not greatly mistaken, I will not offend you if I equally render unto you and procure of you the supplement of that honor, in so far as I can via the testimony of this little book, which I humbly beg that you receive courteously, as your courtesy is renowned for many reasons. This part edited for excessive ass-kissing. Man. That was one long run-on sentence. Thank you, Marazzo. <laughs> that guy needed an editor. He needed an editor so bad. So bad. That was insane. Uh, I think there were a total of two paragraphs in there. Or, I mean, uh, there were there were uh, two periods in there. So, yeah. Thanks, Marazzo. All right, so what do we get that from that, Stephen? I, you know, that's that's a lot. First of all, um, we'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can read it. But uh, for those of you who are just listening uh, on the podcast, uh, what are some of the, the sort of the key things that we can probably take from that? Well, I think that obviously the first big takeaway is that Guido Rangoni uh, was a very important man, and it seems somebody to whom Achille Morozzo. Uh, was attached in some fashion. Yeah, they were quite well acquainted. Um, so it would seem. Yeah, they were they were essentially the same age, mm-hmm. um, and likely studying under Maestro Antonio De Luca at the same time, most likely at the same place, uh, at the casino. Yeah, and we'll talk about the casino here in a minute. So. You know, I, I one of the things that stands out to me too is obviously the the awesome tagline of um, you know the Bolognese maestro Guido Antonio de Luca, from whose school it can be said that more warriors emerged than is said to have emerged from the Trojan horse. It's such a such a cool line. <laughs> oh, that is such a cool line. That's absolutely the best it, line of all. And it and it seems like the more that we dig into this, the more we find instances of people who are potentially Bolognese practitioners. Now, our next source is, you know, the guy who really starts throwing names out and associating them with this system of study. Talk now, about a name dropper, Vijani. Oh god. <laughs> oh my god, man. So, it's scantless. Yeah, but you know, this is the interesting thing that I find about Vigiani. Um is that, you know, he's writing for Charles V when he's originally writing his treatise. Of course, it's not given to Charles V. It's it's uh, published posthumously by his brother. But he's writing for Charles V. It's likely that he was a fencing master in the, whole, the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, one of the names that he name drops is actually a Bavarian. Um, but I left that guy out because, one, it would be a lot of stuff, and two... We're not here to talk about Germans. Right. <laughs> They've got their own podcast. That's right. They've got their own <laughs> podcast. So, um, you know, but I mean, it's it's super fascinating, um, you know, getting into, I mean, it, it, it's funny to me. It, it's just kind of funny the way that, you know, Marazzo kind of like lauds over Guido Rangone. And I mean, any anybody who's ever read a dedication knows that they're always ridiculous, right? Oh my lord, they are. They're they're very difficult. They're very different than our sensibilities, which is one of the important things about studying the history. Because again, it's baked into the whole art. Yeah. These people had not come across the idea yet that all people are created equal, and they would have found that idea preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. So. I get yeah well I mean that's an interesting point I think the first one is the uh, Swabian Declaration of Human Rights in terms of like this contemporary European period which I think doesn't happen for or it might have happened at this point I don't know but I can't remember the date I think it might have been no I think it's it's later because I think it happens before the Protestant Reformation it's like just before yeah it's like in like the mid 1500s but regardless. Um, let's dive into Vigiani just a little bit. Uh, do you want to say Conti or Rodamante? Uh, why don't you take Conti and I'll take Rodamante. All right. I'll take Conti. Very well. This is your second guard. I understand it. And if I practice it, I will be able to do it well before long. 
I have heard it said that this guard is well liked by Senor Duca Ercole IV de Ferrara, who, in addition to his many virtues, is extremely delighted by the military art and that of the unaccompanied sword. That is quite reasonable, because as this guard is the quickest to hit, it suits a knight who is so quick and desirous to strike his enemy, as the Signore Duca was both in the joust and in public combat when he was practicing, even though he always succeeded in maintaining the peace for his people. I've always heard him celebrated as such, and infinitely commended, and I hear that in writing he is hailed greatly as well. Hailed, certainly, and it is no wonder, for he is among the ideal and wisest princes that this age has. So, should we go ahead and spill a little bit of dirt about the origins of Ercole Dieste here? Yeah, yeah, let's dish a little bit. <laughs> Alright, so, there is a, uh, there's a pretty scandalous rumor as to how Ercole Dieste actually was uh, <clears throat> brought about. <laughs> um... Ercole Dieste obviously is the the son of Alfonso Dieste allegedly, and uh, there's a rumor that his mother Lucrezia Borgia Dieste had an affair with uh, the Marquis of Mantua Francesco Gonzaga, and well, actually, it's not a rumor that he they had an affair. They definitely had an affair, but there's a rumor. Had an affair. <laughs> Well, that, the kind of affair they had may not have been the sort of conducive towards making children. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a rumor that this child is not of Alfonso. Now, this actually led to the death of an innocent man uh, who was acting as the intermediary between these two, one Ercole Storzi. Strozzi. Ercole Strozzi. 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 Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why you're here, man. You hear that? <laughs> my BS Italian pronunciations. Um, yeah, Strozzi. So, Ercole Strozzi, who was a poet uh, living in Ferrara, and uh, he was acting as an intermediary, writing letters between Lucrezia Borgia d'Este and the Marquis of Mantua, so that way they could write in secret and everything was coded. Well, it just so happens that... Alfonso Dieste found out about one of these letters and found out that it came from Ercole Strozzi. And uh, he had Strozzi taken care of. Maybe it was Alfonso, maybe it was his brother, the bad Cardinal Ippolito. Ah. But somebody in the Deste clan really was in on this. So, And you know, if Ercole Strozzi had attended Morozzo's dagger class, he may have survived. <laughs> Yeah, so Strozzi was a cripple, and he, uh, next to his dead body, which was laid out in the streets, so everybody found it in the morning after his murder, uh, laid beside him very neatly was his cane and a lock of his hair. And he was said to be one of the most beautiful men you had ever seen. Like, he was incredibly handsome. And, of course, it made Alfonso incredibly jealous, even though Alfonso had other love affairs of his own. Uh, most notably his cannons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so big, so smooth, so hard. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a little bit of intrigue here um, with uh, the origins of Ercole Este and... Uh, but later on, he actually becomes really important because he would have been the Duke of Ferrara at the time that Angelo Vigiani was writing. Um, and so they probably had a personal relationship. It's It could be speculated that they had a personal relationship, especially with Vigiani's connections. Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah. I wish we would know. All right, shall we talk about Guido Rangoni and Giovanni de' Medici? Yeah, let's get into it. Okay. All right, so I'm taking Conti again. Yep, I'll do Rodamonte. All right, this is a short one. All right. It is true. This seems to me the finest guard amongst the defensive ones, and this, if I could recall correctly, was much used by Signor Giovanni de' Medici and Signor Conti Guido Rangone, rare men and excellent in the handling of arms. Oh, you speak the truth. I have seen it used by the Signore Conte Guido, a man not very tall of body, although towering 
in valor, and chiefly with the unaccompanied sword. They speak, mm. of course, of Porta di Ferrostretta, or as Vigiani terms it, the which guard? Guardia Defensiva Perfecta. Aha, there we go. Yes. Yeah, the perfect defensive guard, which, of course, you know, the Bolognese authors would agree with. It's, you know, basically Manchiolino in a nutshell, right? That is, yeah. Anonimo Bolognese says, this is the guard in which you all valiant men start taking the field. Oh, very nice. That's an awesome data point. Uh, yeah, so we've got, you know, of course, Giovanni de' Medici is a character that's going to come in later on in the story. Um, that mm -hmm. we're going to be highlighting through this. And, of course, our, our main character here is Guido Rangoni. Um, and, you know, we've got our first uh, sort of outside data point. But, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting about all this is that, you know, so far we've got Ercole di Este, who could have been a, or was a contemporary of Vigiani. And then we have Guido Rangoni and Giovanni de' Medici, both of whom would have been before Vigiani's time, or at least when he was a very young man. So this is really when we start getting into the mythological portion of things, where they're kind of heralding back to characters that were sort of larger than life. Right. Yeah. But the other thing, too, that I, I see in this and that I see is, like, super interesting is that both, you know, Ercole di Este, being a contemporary not only of Vigiani, but also of Charles V, would have been well known to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor because Ferrara was a big player. Right, um, and and the dukedom was important. Whereas Guido Rangoni and Giovanni de' Medici were both characters who were long gone, but whose memory was substantial enough that just the mention of their name would have brought back memories to people who had studied history in the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. Right. So they, I think the idea is there. If you were to think of it as rock stars. Um, you know, Guido Rangoni would have been the Paul McCartney, so of the <laughs> Conditieri, where he had a long career that went back and was kind of thought of a, a decent fellow, an honorable guy. Um, and then Giovanni de' Medici uh, happened to die before he could actually, you know, we could he'd be the Jimi Hendrix. So he he died before you could see where he would actually fail. So. I think there's always this sort of lost cause myth with Italians when they, in the Italians at the time, where they like to pretend that they somehow could have formed that disparate collection of city-states into something like a, a country in the order yeah. of France or Spain uh, and repelled the invaders in the hope that one of these heroes would have been capable of doing it. Yeah. Which that's, that's... Machiavelli kind of thought, but which... The, the cynic, Guicciardini, thought is just ridiculous because he, <laughs> he knew his people. <laughs> he did, yeah. Yeah, of course, then we have Julius II who wishes to make everybody, you know, put everybody under the heel of the papal state. And, of course, oh, we will talk man. about Julius. Yeah, if you thought the Catholic Church was bad now, you have no clue. None. Oh, man. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. Didn't, wait, so could we put, uh, I can't remember what age Giovanni de' Medici died. We haven't quite gotten him in our research yet, but, um, was he 27? Yeah, is I he mean, in the forever? Is he yeah, in the he's forever like Kurt 27? Cobain, man. Yeah, yeah. he's in the forever 27 yeah. with Jimmy he Hendrix ate, and Kurt Cobain. Exactly. He ate one of oh Death's cannonballs and then <laughs> died. Yeah, he did. In the hope that, you know, um, in the hope that he alone would have been able to save Rome from the sacking of the Lands Connects, which obviously no one person was going to be able to do that, but that is the dream. Yeah. So Guido Rangoni had the misfortune of growing old, and so people could see what he could accomplish in his life. And he lived an honorable, successful life, but he was not able to save Italy. All right, now let's move on to Francesco Maria della Rovere. Now that we've talked shit about Julius II, uh, let's talk... Let's talk about his nephew. <laughs> let's talk about his nephew. All right. Who's also a treacherous bastard. Oh, man. He's a dick. <laughs> All right, so uh, 
We only have Conti on this one. You want me to just roll you with it? Roll with it, man. Roll with it. All right, here we go. Most excellent Francesco de Maria, Duca di Urbino. In his time, a man of valor, knowledge, and prudence, according to a few, praised beyond measure this final guard of yours and placed it before nearly all others. Well, you better praise it in his pres- presence, because he's going to kill you <laughs> if you were if you didn't tell him what he wanted to hear. <laughs> and, of course, he's talking about Cotolonga Stretta, which, uh, you know, is something that, you know, Marazzo is quite a fan of a yeah. little bit. Yeah. So um, So my, my pet theory on that is he learned from the same person that taught Capoferro, uh, who was essentially born in that same area that Francesco Maria del Rovere was from. And so... It essentially is fighting in Terza instead of fighting in Porta di Ferrostrata. Hmm. That's, that's good. And of course, we know that Francesco Maria della Rovere was uh, sort of, I guess we could say that, I, what, what's the term that the, um, not necessarily papal legate, but the, the man who's in charge of the papal forces? Captain General of the Papal Army. Yeah, he was captain general of the papal army in Bologna. Oh, the Gonfaloniere of the church, I think? I, I can't pronounce that one correctly, though. That's all right. Gonfaloniere. Yeah. yeah, so we, we know that he was in charge of the troops in Bologna um, for a spell of time. Um, you know, it could be that he trained under a Bolognese master while he was there, or, or a few of... Quite possible. Yeah. Or trained with... So uh, he could have learned the art while he was there. All right. So now we're going to move on to our other hero of our story, uh, or anti-hero if you want. <laughs> you choose. <laughs> Ugo are you Pipole. team Peppoli or are you team Rangone? <laughs> that's right. And that's going to be the theme of this entire podcast. <laughs> All right. So um, why don't you kick it out there? Okay, Ugo Pepoli, Guardia di Alencorno. You have spoken most excellently. You see, therefore, that the Guardia Alta Offensiva, Perfetta, is of greater perfection and more valorous. This is the most apt guard with which to harm the enemy with grave injury and to defend oneself marvelously at the same time. If it happens, then, that the enemy should be smaller than you and you place yourself in this guard, he would never put himself at risk by coming toward your directed point. And if he is clever, he will remain distant because it is an essential trait of a good knight to consider well the equality or the inequality of his adversary. If the illustrious Signor Conti, Ugo, householder, man of such valor, art, and knowledge, that he is the chief Italian close to his most Christian majesty, has this guard for his favorite, and is well practiced in it, being large of frame and well proportioned. He has good reason, because he has thereby, among all other knights, allow me to say, the greatest advantage. Oh, you are correct, Conte. It is of great advantage to have so large a stature and have well-proportioned limbs, and also to have cunning and great learning, as does Conte Ugo. Our Conte Ugo, in truth, conducted a thousand wonderful enterprises, and has brought excellent fame to his country in distant lands. He is certainly a man with great heart and great judgment. (laughs) (laughs) They are so psychophantic. (laughs) So, why are we getting so much praise heaped on... Ugo Pepole. Um, well, we can we go uh, into a lot of it, but Ugo Pepole was instrumental in not only driving the Bentivoglio family from Bologna, but in preventing their return to Bologna. So he's got a he's got a pretty. I mean, obviously, you know, this is he's one of our our chief characters in this story, and while Guido Rangone is going to get a lot of the. Uh, sort of the bulk of the information um, presented about him because there's more written about Guido Rangone than there is Pepole. Um, he is this really interesting character where he does some pretty fascinating things. And, of course, we're going to get into that history as much as we possibly can and try to present uh, sort of a full list of his enterprises since they were so wonderful and there were thousands of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
exaggerating just a little bit. I just love that he's so well proportioned of limbs. <laughs> oh man. Oh yeah. You know the thing that stood out to me the most about this though um, is, and we kind of already highlighted this in sort of the the dual teaser, which is kind of the the midway point of our story and where we'll eventually be headed. Um, to really set up why this duel ends up taking place between Ugo Pepole and uh, Guido Rangoni. But one of the things that's really interesting in this is that it almost alludes to the duel a little bit. Oh, pray tell, how? Well, we know if we go back to Guido Rangoni, right? It talks about how he's small of stature, although towering in valor, right? Right. And uh, Guido Rangoni's nickname uh, was, uh, was it Piccolo? Yes, yeah, he was little rank. He was little Guido. Yeah, he was he was the little Guido. Because there was big Guido and little Guido, and he was little Guido. Yeah. I bet so, he loved that nickname too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it it seems like it's something that uh, his uncle Gerardo would use as a way to just kind of continuously like put him in his place. But That's uh, why he got so good in the use of arms. <laughs> Exactly. It's always those small dudes that get really serious about fighting. Yeah. <laughs> so we know that um, we know that Ugo Pepoli using Gordi Alicorno is really interesting because it says that it would be something that's more advantageous for somebody who's taller uh, and well proportioned of limbs, of course, um, to have the greatest advantage, right? And that it's something that you would want to do against a smaller opponent. Right. And Only against a smaller opponent, really. Yeah, and, and this is something that we know ends up sort of transpiring in this duel between Guido Rangoni and Ugo Papoli. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we can only imagine reading this that Ugo Papoli was holding Gordi Alicorno as he was fighting Guido Rangoni. Who, Quite possible, you know, yeah. It's, perhaps it's, was in Porta de Ferro, or perhaps he was in, uh, you know, He would have been in Cordelunca Alta. Yeah, yeah. Where does that come from? The anonymous, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he would have been right using he would have been using the correct techniques that the anonymous suggests to use, which is to have his left foot left foot forward and his sword off on his right side, uh, offering his chest as an, a target to Ugo Papoli in the hopes that Papoli would try to take it. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, so I, I, I just found that really interesting, especially now that we've done as much research as we have. It's been a while, you know, I, I think we kind of came to this actually because of Vigiani, right? Yes. Um, and I remember our first conversation, we talked about dang Guardia Dallincorno when your opponent is taller than you. Or if you're taller than somebody, how you can just rain imbrocatas down on them all day long. <laughs> And it's super frustrating defense again. Right, which is probably which is basically Vigiani's entire scaremo, right? So this is his entire motion. You're just gonna come in in this. You're either gonna hit him, or he's going to try and attack around it. Then you're gonna take control of the sword, and you're gonna throw another imbricata. Yep. Easy peasy, it. lemon squeezy. That's it's really right. not so different from Dalagokie's thirty day form. It's the same basic idea. Imbricata. Yep. They respond to the invitation. Boom. Curiously, the Anonimo prefers to follow that up with the false edge parry, but I guess that's we're kind of going off on a tangent at that point. No, I like that. I actually really like the Anonimo's take on that, where he comes back with that that false edge and then comes back down with the cut across the arms. Um, that's that's a good one. Um, yes, I use that quite a lot. I like but, that uh, one too. Yeah, I, I also yeah. like the imprecata as a provocation to the hand that he kind of starts that off with. Yeah, I, I don't really actually like attacking the deep target with the Imbricata personally. It, it's it just too many things can go sideways. You, you kind of depend on your opponent acting the way you want them to and not necessarily how they do, which is random. It's hard to control, to do anything random when somebody's stabbing your hand. It's just... <laughs> yeah, interestingly, I've actually found... so. The Ricardiano, the Anonimo Ricardiano, which is a Florentine source, actually relies on this a lot, um, where he does the Impercata uh, just a shit ton. And it's it's pretty wild because his entire, you know, the way that he uses the Impercata is always after you've 
already gained control of your opponent's sword, which is fascinating to me. But that, that fits exactly with what you're talking about. It's perfect. Right. You find him on the outside, imbricata to the chest every time. Yeah, and, and that fits Vigiani too, right? Like you're right. either going to do the imbricata as a defense or you're going to do it as a provocation in which you're going to perform a defense that sets you back up for the imbricata. And right, which is why we need to have a class entirely on defending against the imbricata so that people can actually throw imbricatas without them, your opponent just running away. That, that, that's the sad <laughs> thing about when you get into Unicorn Guard. You're not going to get defense from it. You're just going to throw some stuff. Your opponent's going to back up like five steps, and then you're going to end up in a low guard because they all keep running away. I mean, it is intimidating. It's what, and it's what he says to do. If they're sensible, they'll just back up. Like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. True. Yeah. yeah. Although Francesco Maria della Rovere's position of Cordelunga Strada is pretty solid against the Imbricata. If you yes, make sure to dip it so that your point is on the other side of their sword, then as they come in with the Imbricata, you just, well, you essentially just make your own Imbricata over their Imbricata. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So let's read this last one here. Uh, we have. Uh, Duke Ottavio Farnese with the Impercata. So, perfect setup. Um, Alright, so here we go with Conti. I see it, but I will not be able to do it soon. You will be able to do it sooner than you believe, having judgment and disposition in arms, as did the most excellent Signore Duca Ottavio Farnese, who, hearing it from and seeing it done by me, thought that he would have to toil long before he would learn it well, but then, in the shortest time, he became a more perfect fencer of it than I am. I believe it, because he is the most subtle and acute wit, and apt to every work of judgment, as though he and all of his most illustrious house were favored beyond the norm by nature in every enterprise, wherein agility of body and strength of mind is required. If we live long enough, Conte, we will see the Signore to be the chief among knights and Signori, he being blessed with valor, virtue, and knowledge. Mm. So I think this is actually pretty cool. Later on in the story, we'll, we'll talk about Guido Rangoni's happenings with Rodamante, because he is uh, a character in the 1530s um, that kind of gets involved a little bit with Guido and his brother um, in some land disputes. Um, but, you know, here we have Rodamante as a sort of fictional character that Vigiani is sort of using as a muse, speaking of training, uh, Ottavio Farnese. And the question is, did that actually happen? And is Vigiani like hearkening to something here? But, that I can't, I don't know. I, I really don't, I haven't studied the Farnese at all yet. Yeah, I, I don't either. So, you know, that's that's a, a good question for us to try to answer later on as we kind of get a little bit deeper into this research. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's still interesting. You know, I mean, we, we talk about the Impercata. Obviously, you know, by 1550, Vigiani thought the Impercata was pretty much the only thing that you need to know. So, <laughs> you know. That's, yeah, you had an entire system based around that. It's the most perfect guard. Although he doesn't really discuss what you do when you're short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, you I know, guess you, like yeah. most of us historical fencers, you know, if, when we're going through the manuscripts, we're looking for, all right, how am I going to make this work for the short guy? Or I once had this woman who was seven months pregnant that forced me to take an entirely different look at it. Like, all right, how am I going to teach the seven-month pregnant woman how to be a badass with a sword? <laughs> So, interestingly enough, maybe Vigiani and, uh, I don't know, Dalagokie are for, and maybe the Anonimo are for taller fencers, where, you know, somebody like Manchiolino right. is for shorter fencers. And Morozzo. Morozzo does not look oh. tall. No, he doesn't. You know what? And in and, and thinking about that, Morozzo has a tendency to go to wide guards and use a lot of percussive actions from wide guards to beat the sword away and, and go for things that are very much like... I'm going to make it look like I'm open, but I'm small, and that means you have a bigger tempo to hit me because I'm, I'm lower than you. Right. You know? And, and he I'm, just I'm wants just to get to the wrestling anyway. All the sword stuff is just... Oh, oh yeah. 
It's all just a tease before you get into the wrestling part. Oh yeah, yeah. If you, so, I mean, if total if you go small through, guy move. Total small guy move. Yeah. <laughs> if you read through any of his single sword plays, you know that everything basically ends up in an in a in a grapple in some way. Yeah. Like it's just a natural progression. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Him and Fiore. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Phew. An entire system built around going to grappling. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hope you're not a tall guy. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to move on and we're going to talk a little bit about Paladini. Now, this one is super interesting because a long time ago, a long, many, back in the early aughts of the Learte del Arme podcast, you and I talked and yes. I was telling you about Paladini and I was like, and he mentions this guy Mancino of Bologna and you were like, I've looked that up. That's not Manciolino. And I was like, damn, that's not Manciolino, right? So we had no... Yeah. No data point of, of who this Mancino was, except you said that he was a condottiere. But through the process of this podcast, we have found out a lot of information about Mancino of Bologna. Or as they called so him excited. at the time, Il Mancino, the lefty. <laughs> yeah, the lefty. So we have the Phil Mickelson of Fencers here, the legend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who dies in the greatest death of glory that you can possibly imagine. Um, but we'll get to that later. We're not going to talk about that right now. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to just read through Paladini real quick. Um, yeah. So we have kind of a reference of, of why Palad, well, just Paladini's mention of this, this guy that we're going to talk considerably about um, through the first couple episodes of this podcast. Uh, so Paladini says... It can only be beneficial if from the outset fencing masters observe this method of teaching their students how to move, so they develop the strength and control of their bodies, understand what they can gain on to the inside, the outside, high and low, and every eventuality that might ensure ensue when defending or attacking. In this manner they will become accomplished in the practice of arms, and not play haphazardly, conveying their intentions to their enemies as they move. These were the methods of the old masters, that is, the most excellent and celebrated among them, such as Tapa of Milan, the Beccaroni, Mancino of Bologna, and infinite other valiant men of this profession. So, it's really fascinating that, you know, Tapa of Milan is mentioned somewhere else, uh, and I think it's in Lavino, if I'm not mistaken. Lavino oh, okay. says that Tapa of Milan was literally the greatest sword fighter of the age, right? And, you know, Lavino's writing at about the same time these guys are, where he's writing in the, like the 1550s, right? So okay. that's relatively contemporary to somebody like Vigiani. I don't. I've looked for information on Tapa of Milan. I haven't been able to find anything, but I will continue to look throughout. You know whatever sources we're looking at, because I would love to know more about this guy. Because we have two different sword-fighting masters that mention this guy as being a total badass. So that's super interesting. But he's mentioned in the same breath of this Mancino of Bologna. And boy, do we have some stories for Mancino of Bologna. Yeah, so Mancino of Bologna, we won't get too much into it. Um... He begins his career as many down-and-out noblemen uh, do, which is he challenges somebody to a duel. So he starts off as a, you know, basically some random mercenary, I believe in the Milanese army. Um, he gets into an argument or something like that, and they decide he's too much of a pain in the butt, so they kick him out. And so he decides that he needs to get back in, and he does it the most Italian way possible. He challenges somebody to a duel. Then there's a big celebrated duel, and he wins, and he fights with such valor and so valiantly that he gets a job. And a lot of these duels that happen are career moves. Yeah, we were starting to kind of get the impression a little bit that there's almost this like blood sport gladiatorial thing going on where some of these marquees and dukes have a tendency to kind of pull these guys together and say, hey, do you want a job? Because if you guys fight each other in the arena in front of me and my friends and my entire court, we might give you a job, but you yeah. got to gotta get that guy. 
get him. Yeah. And, you know, and it could also be that there's just only so many guys that are not going to recoil in fear from a sharp blade. And yeah. there's no proof like actually doing it. Yeah. So one of the cool things that we know about Mancino um, is he was very deeply connected with the Bentivoglio family. And that means that he was probably training alongside Annabale Bentivoglio and Hermes Bentivoglio, some characters that we'll talk about in later episodes, but also Guido Rangone. And he was probably one of the students of De Luca, um, which is really fascinating um, as we kind of start to build this story out because, you know, these guys were, were together and they were, they were sharing ideas. Um, but they were sharing these ideas in this... Uh, in this interesting place, so let's uh, let's kind of talk about this a little okay, bit. Okay, let's talk about the founding of the school and the thing that we found in Giridachi. Yeah. So, so you're the one who found it, man. Tell us. Well, to be fair, you found the data point first, and Anabali's timeline. I found it in the source document, so I get I get second credit. You get first credit. You found this information. So, in 1496. Um, Annabali Bentivoglio um, built a uh, at the Palazzo di Borgo della Paglia. Did Paglia. I get that right? Paglia. 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 Ah, that's the GL again. Dang the it. GLI, man. It's ah. tough. It is tough. All right. Palazzo in Borgo, Borgo della Paglia. Yeah. Yeah? All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, by my it. standards, you know. <laughs> and he named it the Casino, which is cool, right? So, so cool. yeah. He's, the so, little house. So we know that he created this, uh, it, it's a series of houses, basically, right? It's uh, And they're all connected. But in that, he started a school of fencing where he could exercise weapons and bring his knights and they could train together. Um, so... I do you want to read the Italian of uh, Giradaki? Okay, I apologize to any Italians listening. I I'll do my best. Annabale frattanto fece fare in palazzo nel borgo della Paglia, nominandalo il casino, e questo lo lo faceva fare per suo diporto e degli amici suoi per potervisi e con l'armi esercitare e fare altra simile cose. And apologies to anybody who that makes absolutely no sense to because I'm the one that did the transcription of that. And that's a direct transcription of the, the original Italian. So if it sucks, that's totally my fault. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so... Our, our translation of that, our loose translation, our, our Google translation, not Stephen's translation. This is me doing this. Um, meanwhile, Annabali had it done in the Palazzo and Borgio della uh, Paglia, naming it uh, the Casino. And he made him do this for pleasure and his friends to be able to, and with his weapons, exercise and do other similar things. So the backstory on this is there's a street near... Uh, the Bentivoglio Palace. And the Bentivoglio were like the Medici of Bologna. They were the big, most important family in the city. And everybody either liked them or was trying to kill them. That's just how life went in Bologna. So he had his knights living in a series of houses not far from the palazzo of the Bentivoglio family. And... At the end of the street, Annabali had this palazzo for practicing with arms built. Nice. Yeah, so, you know, we've got, we're starting to, like, pull together all these really interesting data points. And um, once we had the location of this, because uh, you found uh, the actual location, right? I did, yes, yeah. And it's still standing. It's got a lot of graffiti on it. Sadly, so yes. Yeah, but it's uh, still there. Yeah, there's there's some debate as to whether this is the building or not. Uh, it's where he talks about it, and there's some early 16th century art 
uh, from people that would have been the kind of painters that were around at the air, at the time uh, that is inexplicable and when I'm imagining this place I usually imagine that when you walk into it in the old days there was a big picture of a Trojan horse in the foyer uh, <laughs> with men descending out of it with swords at the ready I love that so we know that according, well, at least according to information and research that Richard Colonen had done, that Guido Antonio de Luca, when he was living in Bologna, lived in Santa Maria della Muritelli. Right? That city, or that, that area of the city of Bologna is a nine-minute walk from the casino. Nine minutes. It's a nice commute. Not bad. Not yeah. bad. It's a good place to live if you're working at the casino and teaching Annabale Bentivoglio and all of his ilk. So it's important to... Another thing to remember is that Guido Rangone was the nephew of Annabale Bentivoglio. Yep. So it seems that it would have been very odd for him to have not been learning at um, the casino. Mm-hmm. And another interesting thing, um, and this kind of goes into the history of Hermes and Annabale Bentivoglio, but prior to this, when Annabale and Hermes Bentivoglio were taught fencing, they went to Ferrara to be trained how to become knights. Right. Right? So, right. And so this was the foundation of Annabale bringing localized fencing to the sort of... Uh, I guess you could say the the family offshoots of, of him himself and his brothers and you know their cousins and perhaps other people because we know that Marazzo had studied under De Luca um, and kind of pulled them all together so that way they could train and this was founded in 1496, right? Annabale trained in Ferrara as a knight, I believe in 1494. Was it that oh, point? No, that we saw? no, no 1470s, way 1470s. earlier. 1470s. Oh yeah, because yeah, right, he's older. Was... Yeah. So he would have been training in the same court uh, that Fiore de, Li de Libere was uh, apparently teaching at. And also probably through which uh, Vadi was connected, as Vadi seems to have been a vassal or an employee at any rate of the Deste family. Right. Yeah, the Deste had copies of Fiore, but they... Fiore was probably long gone at that point. Right. He was their ancient master. He was their yeah. Tapa of Milan or their Marozzo. Right. And they had multiple copies um, of, of Fiore. And so we do have, through this, the real potential for deep connections between Fiore as a sort of inherent foundation of the Bolognese system. And so I think what's important to note about this time is 1496 uh, was shortly after the French began their great party in Italy. So in 1494, the French army invaded Italy, essentially, and among the troops they had was a large supply of Swiss pikemen. And this was an unusual feature in Italian warfare at the time to have large bodies of highly skilled infantry um, that were very hard to fight with. And so one of the things I suspect that was going on at the time, and this is something we'll talk about in future episodes, was an attempt to figure out uh, how to turn Italians into effective field infantry. So the Italians were very skilled at defending their cities, um, absolutely. But in the field, it really belonged to the knights, and there was a lot of pressure among the Italians, or a lot of interest, I should say, to develop something that could stand toe to toe with the Swiss, and you know the and those that would follow them, like the Tercios of Spain and the Landsknechts from Germany. Yeah, and so there's multiple military revolutions that end up happening as a result of the French basically coming in and like just kind of kicking everybody's ass, uh, including yeah. the Spanish, right? Um, we know that um, uh, Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordoba, 
who's known as the great captain, was the great uh, sort of innovator of the Spanish forces. And one of the things, one of the innovations um, that he made, which, by the way, uh, just as a quick mention, since we're bringing up his name, Manchiolino dedicates his treatise to the son-in-law of Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordova. Oh, I did hey. not know. Cool. Yeah. And what was oh, his military? Well. What is his military innovation? Uh, his military innovation to the Spanish army was incorporating sword and buckler soldiers and sword and rotella soldiers into their pike formations to counter the pikes. That doesn't sound like anything that could have been related to Manchelino no, at all. Manchelino not at all. demonstrates no interest in the sword and buckler or the sword and rotella. Yeah, so I don't no. know how we're making all these connections, but no, no. You know, yeah. it's just you know, it's just all happenstance, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's all, all just a coincidence. So yeah, just a coincidence. It seems to have been that there will be a rivalry from between different groups of infantry too, but um, and there would be there would be infantry companies that would be coming from Bologna and joining in the fights as well, which we'll talk about in the future. And so the last note that I had here uh, from Marazzo's school, which he establishes after the expulsion of the Bentivoglio. So one of the things that people might be asking is, well, why did Marazzo's school, why is Marazzo's school in a different part of the city? That doesn't really make sense. But as we'll learn in the story, um, you know, the Bentivoglio, where, you know, De Luca was probably training the Bentivoglio family in their ilk in the casino, um, were not there past a certain date. And so it makes perfect sense that Marazzo, um, who probably left ben, uh, Bologna either with the Bentivoglio or as a mercenary before the Bentivoglio, which many of the uh, Bolognese knights or tr well-trained men did, uh, including Mancino, um, you know, they, they kind of went out and a lot of them ended up being mercenaries and Venetian companies. Mm. <laughs> or papal companies. Or papal companies. That's um, right. And, uh, and so, you know, Maranzo probably didn't start his school until he had come back from his, his mercenary service. Uh, and, uh, and so that's probably why he started the school or restarted the school away from the casino, because the casino was no longer something that he had access to, uh, because it had been taken back over by, you know. Well, and there were probably multiple dojos in Bologna at the time. <laughs> I like to imagine that Ugo Pepele, the tall guy, probably was in the rival dojo of the casino. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But then again, don't we have a data point where uh, Dalagoke dedicates his treatise to a Pepele? Right. So Dalagoke was a fencing master to the Counts of Castiglione, uh, which were the Pepele family. So it seems that the Pepoli family probably had a habit, guessing here, of keeping their own fencing master around for their own edification. Mm. <laughs> so this we don't know. This is you know this is we're kind of hypothesizing. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, but. Um... We've got some more good data points on Dalagoke, so don't think that we're going to leave him out, even though we uh, we have documentation that Steve is not the biggest fan of Giovanni Dalagoke. So, um, uh, no comment. Yeah. So let's let's pull this all together. So what are what are we getting at? We just went through a ton of information. Um, you know, we we really kind of just probably gave people information overload and that's part of my fault for the way that I structured this but you know what are, what are we what are we playing at what are we going towards here Stephen well for me now after I've done all this when I pick up a sword and I place myself into guard I feel a deeper connection to the art having understood more of what is happening uh, more of the psychology um, also, one other interesting thing to point out, and I forgot to mention this earlier, is the importance that the Bolognese school emphasizes fighting on foot. There's literally nothing in, ex except in Dalagoke, about how to joust. Otherwise, the entire art takes place on foot. And I think that's a very significant data point considering that... Um, considering the time and the pressure to develop effective Italian infantry units. Yeah. And this is one of the other things. A lot of people want to 
kind of figure out how this fits into, how Bolognese fits into the military uh, stuff at the time. Like, how are, are people trained by uh, captains or sergeants or whatever in the Bolognese school? And I think that's going to be one of the things that we're going to be addressing in our upcoming 11-part episode on the Condottieri. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, you know, I it, I, I see it the same way, right? Like, I mean, this kind of allows us to touch history a little bit and, and actually, like, reconnect with the origins of what we're looking at. But, you know, from an even deeper side, I think we, we kind of start to understand the ethos and the legend that developed behind this and that, you know, that like you were saying earlier, where there, there are people who made their entire careers on just their knowledge of fencing right and we have these people whose names just the mention of their name brings back all of these memories even though it's 50 or 60 years ago and they're like i don't know like medal of honor recipients in the united states or something of that accord right like these are 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 people who did something that was so great that they were revered for ages well past their time and that's incredible just absolutely incredible absolutely and it's this is the art of the Renaissance. People focus on the painters. The painters are the guys in the background. This is the art of the Renaissance. Yeah. All right. So um, just wanted to kind of build this out as our, our, our teaser episode, even though it's it's going to be, you know, a full hour. <laughs> we didn't expect that. <laughs> you but- can chop it down. Come on. Yeah, this is our teaser episode, and, uh, you know, we just really wanted to kind of introduce everybody to the overall structure and the the idea of what we're going for and how we're building out these episodes, but also introduce you a little bit to some of the research that we've been doing um, so you kind of know where we're headed. And, um, you know, looking at uh, a variety of different sources, we've really tried to compile as much information as we possibly can to, to flush out and build this story as much as possible so that way you as the listener and as Bolognese practitioners have as much understanding and knowledge as we've been able to gain um, and and have that same sense of enrichment and, and understanding of the story. And we're giving you just the good stuff. We're not yeah. going to tell you about how many goldfish there were in the Bentavoglio Palace. <laughs> <laughs> or what kind of plates they had. Or how many stairs there were. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm done. I'm so done with stairs. As, as Ghiridaki has, has told me, every stair that ever existed in the Bentavoglio Palace. Yeah, and going through Sanudo, I could tell you exactly how much the Venetians paid every month for every company in the Venetian army. <laughs> and what the weather was like every day. And what the weather was like. That's right. And what the war cry was for yeah. every battle that happened. Hold up, hold up. That was that is a badass point. That is one of the right. coolest things that I think that he mentions. Perfect, because now, now as Bolognese practitioners, I think that every Bolognese school needs to come up with its own war cry. We need to have our own war cry. There you Heart go. Hard stop. That's it. <laughs> Boom. Done. Cool. I, all right. I might, I might. We'll go with the one from Sanudo, but we'll see. Well, I mean, we all know what yours is gonna be. <laughs> With Power that. of the pig. Power of the pig, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And before we go, I just want to mention uh, registration is open for our Bolognese event in Vancouver. I hope to see everybody there. We're going to be talking about some history there as well. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lecture, or at least part of a lecture, on the Bolognese part of Italian martial arts history. Uh, and we'll also be covering everything Bolognese possible at that event. <laughs>